Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Mysteries podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm very hot, and actually, it means something this time, even though we say it all the time, but I don't know if you heard (gasps) the news that we just had like the hottest day on record, like globally, a few days ago. They said that like, I don't know how they measure that. I'm sure it's like an average, like a global average. But mm-hmm. it was like the hottest day that we've ever recorded. So I fully believe it. I think they said it was, what, July 5th? Um, yeah. Or maybe the third. No, it wasn't I thought it was fourth or something, but maybe you're right on the fifth. Yeah. It was one of those. Sometime between the third July. and the fifth, which mm-hmm. this year felt so weird because the holiday was like in the middle of the week. And so we had like the weekend and then a Monday and a Tuesday. So honestly, I feel like every day was a blur. But it was truly so hot um, here in Florida and apparently everywhere else. So I know. Yeah. So, so what you guys felt event. that day was what we feel every, every day. day. Feel sorry for us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but we're we're trucking along. It's insane to think that we're in July. Again, that's something we say all the time, but it really is. I'm done getting old. I feel like I just don't want to get older. I want the time to stop. <laughs> wow, that like really took a bunch of turns in one it was like i don't want to talk about this anymore i'm also getting older like i don't even know how we got there was it like calendars just like really snuck in there on you i don't know i don't know it just really hit me hard (laughs) that was like fun to be a witness to i have to be honest (laughs) it was definitely a brief mental break yeah (laughs) how about you melissa how are you holding up with the heat Oh, okay. It's impossible. I hate it so much. I'm just angry all the time. But I mean, I'm always angry all the time, but I really feel like I have a reason to. But we did have my son's birthday this week, and it was so much fun. And Mandy reminded me of something that he said. I don't know if it was birthday last year or Christmas. She goes, oh, so he liked his gifts this year? Because I forgot. He like straight up last year or something was like, I don't like any of these gifts. And like, I appreciate the honesty. But this year, he loved it. He was like, I love of my birthday and I was like wow if we could just bottle this up like we got one birthday and that's because he got two fish and so Yay. he's like so excited um did I tell you their names or no. would you like to guess them I um, I just would love there's to no way you names. can guess yeah. them <laughs> <laughs> well the first one I thought he went a little more like okay everybody would think that bubbles I thought okay. that was a very good fish name right but the other one is named Selfish, and I don't know why. <laughs> All I've been able to gather is the word fish is in Selfish, but he claimed it's because it has a weird eye, but, like, that just seems rude, so I don't even understand how that happened. But but I'm, like, Bubbles and Selfish. So that's that's our fish. We, we've added more people to our family just on a much smaller scale. I like it. There's definitely not going to be anyone who says they don't have you. He doesn't have unique names. No. <laughs> I got I thought we were getting off easy with bubbles and then I heard selfish and I was like, "Well, there we go. There it is." <laughs> So anyway, before Mandy, we're almost done with the summer, but going into September in two months, we have CrimeCon, and that is here in, yes, Orlando, September 21st to 24th. If you're wanting to go, we have a 10% discount off standard badges if you use the code MOMS. We've had several people write us and tell us they're coming, and I'm so excited and anxious and like already like, I don't, I'm not what you think I am. You're not going to like me. Like making it about myself very much. Oh, that's Um, always how, yeah, that's whole conference and I'm like you're not gonna like me they're like I barely knew you were gonna be there Um, (laughs) so anyway you can join us there September 21st through 24th code moms crime con join us have fun we'll be very awkward and standing in front of a table 90% of the time Mm -hmm. yes for sure all right so we have a lot to cover this week and I'm both excited and anxious to get into this story um (laughs) Melissa and our researcher Haley have been putting up with me just being like, oh my gosh, you guys, this is such a, just a big story because there's so many people that are involved and uh, there's a lot that's going on. So I really hope that this story is easy to follow. Uh, Melissa already checked it out. She didn't tell me that it sounded like a complete um, mess. So hopefully it doesn't sound like a complete mess. I wouldn't (laughs) say it to your face, even if I did. (laughs) I'll send you a text later and tell you what I think. (laughs) 
So of all the stories that we discuss on the podcast, I would say that death by a fire or arson is one of the more uncommon things to hear about. And I bet that if you asked a group of people what they think would be one of the worst ways to die, many of them would actually say that burning to death was at the top of their list. Any death, I think, that is preceded by immense pain um, is something I think all of us would like to avoid. But fire, in particular, seems like one of the more horrific ways to die. And for me, I think it kind of ranks right up there with my fear of large bodies of water. Totally. Most of the time, when lives are lost in a fire, it's determined to be a very tragic accident. But sometimes, officials see or hear things that lead them to believe that the fire was set intentionally. In the wee hours of the morning on September 21st, 1986, a Chicago apartment building went up in flames, leaving two people dead. Everyone in the apartment complex had been able to escape except for the two victims who were trapped inside the building as the fire engulfed multiple floors. A neighbor told the police that she had seen some boys walking around and talking in the alleyway at about 4 a.m. She told the police that she was actually awake at that time so that she could make her husband's lunch before he left for work. So she was just kind of standing there in the kitchen looking out the window and notices that there are some people out in the alleyway walking around. And she's better than all of us because she got up early to make her husband (laughs) lunch at (laughs) 4 in the morning. I was like, (laughs) ma'am. Yeah, I would... I mean, to be fair, I would totally make sure I included that bit of information. A hundred percent. And this is what I was doing at four (laughs) in the morning. (laughs) You need to know because I need credit for this. Yeah, a hundred percent. So this neighbor, Sophia, said that she saw one of the boys carrying a towel or a cloth of some sort, and she saw the boys throw something onto the second floor of the apartment building, and she could hear glass breaking, and then she saw a small fire. She said that she couldn't identify any of the boys she saw that morning, but she did say that she was friends with the woman who owned the apartment complex, and her name was Blanca Martinez. Although 33-year-old Blanca and one of her brothers, 22-year-old George, managed to escape the fire, it was soon learned that the two people who died were Blanca's other two brothers, Guadalupe, who was 28, and Julio, who was 19. Blanca and her three brothers had been living together in one of the apartments in the building. So after a quick walkthrough of the scene, an investigator from the Chicago Police Department bomb and arson section decided that an accelerant was likely used in the fire, and he classified the incident as arson. There was no testing done to confirm the presence of any accelerant, but the investigation focused entirely on this theory. The origin of the fire was never searched for, but instead they focused on finding evidence that the fire was set intentionally, meaning they didn't do anything to rule out that it was actually an accident. In the days after the fire, police started to get tips and leads. Three different people contacted the police separately and reported that somebody named Lisa had been saying that she was going to burn down the Martinez home. A couple named Adriana and Diego, who had previously lived at the complex, said that Lisa had told them about her plan. Later, Blanca herself told the police that about a week prior to the fire, this Lisa person had threatened to burn down her home. She said that Lisa was friends with two women who lived in the apartment complex. One of them was Adriana, and the other was a woman named Kelly. Adriana lived in an apartment with her boyfriend, Diego, and Blanca had apparently kicked them out because Diego had gotten into some kind of kerfuffle, and he knocked out a window in the apartment. We don't (laughs) use kerfuffle nearly enough. I really enjoyed hearing that. (laughs) So when Adriana and Diego were kicked out, their friend Lisa took it really personally. She wasn't the one kicked out, but she felt very slighted that her friends had been kicked out. So she was so angry that she was going around saying things like, I'm going to start breaking windows and killing somebody, which is a very big response to somebody being kicked out of an apartment. Additionally, Blanca's brother, George, who lived in the apartment with Blanca and their other two brothers, also told Blanca that Lisa had been threatening to burn down their apartment. Diego and Adriana confirmed this story, telling officers that they too overheard Lisa making these threats to retaliate against the Martinez family. Blanca, who, as we said, was the owner of this complex, had evidently had some trouble with several of the residents there for varying reasons. Of course, there's all different types of people that live at apartment complexes, but Blanca seemed to be like the type of landlord who was not going to put up with any funny business, which makes sense because I would imagine I could not do that job because yeah, it's hard. I would be terrified. Yeah, it would be it would be really tough. 
So it seems as though multiple residents really had it out for Blanca and her family for one reason or another, whether it be because she was evicting them from the apartment or because she was calling the police on them. So Diego and Adriana were friends with Kelly and Lisa, and at some point, Kelly told them that she was upset because Blanca had called the police and had Kelly's sister arrested for assault. Lisa said that she could get her boyfriend involved to, quote-unquote, take care of the problem. So Lisa's boyfriend was actually a member of a local gang, and the group of friends believed that Blanca's brother George, who was a member of a rival gang, was responsible for the murder of Lisa's brother. This, combined with the hostility from Blanca, is how Lisa basically justified her anger and this alleged plan or saying this about burning down the Martinez home. There was at least one other person, another resident named Annie, who told police about Lisa making similar types of threats against the Martinez family. So Annie knew Lisa fairly well and told the police that she was affiliated with gang activity and that Lisa had said something about wanting to burn down Blanca's house as a means of getting even with her. At this time, Annie was pregnant, so Lisa said she would wait until Annie moved out before she did anything. Which, okay. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Lisa specifically mentioned burning the place down on a weekend so she'd be sure that Blanca and George were there. When Annie saw the news of the fire on TV, she absolutely believed that Lisa had done it. Annie offered a statement to police, but she was never contacted by them again. Other witnesses reported seeing three men and a woman riding in a car, circling the apartment building several times just minutes before the fire broke out. It was eventually learned that one of the men in the car was linked to recent arsons in the area and had even been in police custody recently, but for whatever reason, no follow-up was ever done and the case went cold. In June of 1987, investigators decided to speak with Sophia again. That was the neighbor who said that she had seen the three men outside near the apartment building just minutes before the fire broke out. Sophia said that one of the men was someone named Ben, and this was somebody that she recognized he actually lived there in the neighborhood and she had seen him before. The police found Ben and asked him some questions about the morning of the fire, and he said that he actually was out in the alley that morning. He said that he ran into two other people when he was out there. It was two teenagers who were named Nick and Ray, and that they were both drunk and high, and so Ben was helping them get home that night. But he said that while they were out there talking, they actually saw three other young men walking in the alley as well. So now that investigators had a couple more names to work with, they were able to go and find some more people to speak with. So they first spoke with this teenager, Ray, and he told them that on September 21st, he and his friends, Nick and Ben, as well as another guy, were outside watching the fire. And while they were outside, they saw a man who they recognized as being John Galvin. John was with his brother and another guy named Michael, and they were also standing around watching the fire. When the police talked to Nick, he told them that he also saw this man, John Galvin and Michael, along with two other men walking together about a half a block from the apartment. Nick said that he actually specifically recognized the two men. And Michael, when he noticed that they had been spotted, Michael put his hood over his head. According to Nick, it was just seconds after seeing the four men walking away that they heard an explosion. Then they heard screams and they saw that the building was on fire. Nick later looked at photos and identified 19-year-old Michael Almendarez as one of the men that he saw walking away that morning. Michael's family also lived in the same neighborhood. So officers brought Michael in for questioning, and this is really where things start to get kind of sketchy. Police allege that Michael implicated two men in the arson within three to five minutes of his interview. Officer Hanrahan said that Michael told him that John Galvin, along with another man named Francisco Nanez, threw a beer bottle full of gasoline at the house and lit the gas on fire with a cigarette. But it was later learned that Michael was actually never informed of his rights. His statement was put in writing, though, about four hours after he gave the interview. Michael had a slightly different story about what happened during that interview, though. He later said that he was kept at the station for 10 to 12 hours with one armed handcuffed to the wall while investigators pressured him to confess to arson. Keep in mind, officers really don't have any proof that the fire was started intentionally. They didn't do any forensic testing at the scene to confirm the use of an accelerant or to rule out the possibility that the fire was actually an accident. But still, the officers threatened Michael even telling him that they were going to drop him off in a dangerous area and just leave him there. 
the officers also hit Michael a few times. Michael said he had no idea about the fire and he wasn't at the scene, but they didn't believe him. He was handcuffed with both hands behind his back and taken to a rival gang's neighborhood and threatened with being left there. Wild. Yeah. Eventually, though, Michael told them he would confess. He went back to the station and endured hours more questioning and eventually signed a confession that he says the officers fabricated. Michael was brought in front of a grand jury the next morning, and as soon as he had the opportunity to address the judge, he told them he didn't write anything in that confession. He said the police spoke it, wrote it, and made him sign it before kicking him out onto the street. Michael never ended up being charged with anything, but officers still had these other alleged suspects to look into. Next, 18-year-old John Galvin and his brother were hastily arrested without a warrant and taken in for questioning. According to police, John, who had just turned 18 a few days earlier, confessed that he, along with 22-year-old Francisco and 20-year-old Arthur, started the fire in order to scare the rival gang members that were living there. Police said that John, Arthur, and Francisco bought the gasoline and filled an empty beer bottle with it, then put a cloth over the top of the bottle and threw it at the house. It didn't ignite, so John poured more gasoline around the building and threw a lit cigarette on it. So after this quote-unquote confession, police arrested Arthur and Francisco. Arthur later said that the police came to his house and asked him to come to the police station, which he willingly agreed to do. He was then taken to a small room where he was assaulted by an officer. He said he was backhanded and grabbed by the throat and told that if he cooperated, things would go smoothly. Arthur continued to be abused at the hands of police officers who kept telling him they didn't care how long it took. They weren't going to stop until Arthur told them what they wanted to hear. Arthur told the investigators that he didn't know anything about the fire, but Officer Hanrahan kept insisting that Arthur and his friends were involved and that other witnesses saw and even heard them talking about the fire. Eventually, a court reporter came into the room with a machine to record Arthur's statement. He tried to tell her what happened, but she called him a liar and a murderer and said that he was going to die. At some point, Detective Hanrahan came back into the room and informed Arthur that his friends, Francisco and John, had already given statements and that neither of them had implicated Arthur in the crime. Upon hearing this, Arthur asked, obviously, if he was free to leave, but the detective then kicked him in the groin and demanded to know why Arthur wouldn't just cooperate. Hanrahan read from the document that stated that John approached Arthur and Francisco and said that he wanted to burn down the Martinez home as retaliation for being shot at. The document also stated that the three men went to a gas station where Arthur pumped gas into empty milk jugs, and then the three men walked into the alley and found an empty beer bottle to use. The document alleged that Francisco lit the rag in the bottle and threw it at the building. Arthur listened to the statement that he was being asked to sign and told the detectives that they couldn't prove any of what they were alleging, and they couldn't prove the contents of this document at all. Hanrahan left the room again, but then another officer soon came back in and placed Arthur in handcuffs. He was taken to the jail for processing and told that he couldn't make a phone call. Soon, Arthur was led to another interrogation room and handcuffed to the wall. Arthur said that Detective Hanrahan then came in with a yellow piece of paper and said, quote, We'll just say that as you walked from the alley, you stopped before getting to the house while John and Francisco kept going. After a few minutes, they came running past and told you to run. End quote. Hanrahan said that this would show that Arthur wasn't involved and that he was just trying to get away from the other perpetrators. And he asked Arthur if he wanted his baby daughter to grow up calling someone else dad. And then he handed him this piece of paper to sign and left the room. Yeah. So despite these very abusive tactics, Arthur still denied knowing anything about the fire. A long while passed, and Arthur was then brought to another room where he met the assistant state attorney, Joel Layton. Arthur tried to tell him that he was being assaulted by police because he wouldn't make a statement, but it became pretty clear that Layton was not on his side. Arthur realized that he was on his own, and there was really no one to help him. He had been through hours of abuse at the hands of the investigators, and he just wanted to go home. Eventually, Detective Hanrahan told Arthur that he just needed to make a statement. He wasn't saying Arthur participated in the offense, just that he had to make a statement in order to go home. So the DA Layton knocked on the door again and asked if everything was fine. 
he sat down and asked Arthur what he wanted to tell him. Arthur said he didn't remember. And then Detective Hanrahan chimed in to help him. And he said, quote, you told me you and Francisco were hanging out on 24th Street. And John walked up and said he wanted to go burn a house on 24th Place because some guys who lived there shot at him a couple weeks back, end quote. So the DA asked Arthur if this is correct, and Arthur said yes. So Leighton continued to ask questions, and Hanrahan continued to prompt Arthur with answers. So upon completing this so-called statement, Leighton asked Arthur to sign each page. Arthur later said the statement he signed just wasn't true. When he signed it, Arthur believed that the police wanted him to accuse John and Francisco, and then they would let him go. But that's not how it went down. Arthur ended up being charged with aggravated arson and first-degree murder. He was taken to jail where he tried to inform the medical staff that he was injured, but no one would help him. So as for what happened in Francisco's interview with the police, the one where he allegedly took responsibility for the crime, well, that wasn't exactly a black-and-white scenario either. As it would turn out, Francisco was heavily intoxicated when he signed his confession. He'd been taking drugs and drinking alcohol for a few hours hours before the police brought him in. When officers showed up at Francisco's home, his father was actually there and asked the officers if they had a warrant and they said no. But Francisco told his dad that he had nothing to hide and nothing to worry about and said that he was fine to go down to the station and answer a few questions. By the time they got to the station and started their interview, though, Francisco was feeling the full effects of the substances that he had taken. He was clearly under the influence when the questioning began. Francisco told them he had nothing to do with the fire or the death of the two victims, but he was then subject to a lengthy interrogation that included physical assault whenever Francisco would deny his involvement. He continued to protest and say that he was innocent. At some point, a pre-written statement was brought in for Francisco to sign. It was literally just handwritten on a pad of notebook paper. So Francisco takes a look at this. At this point, he's tired, he's hungry, he's sick from taking drugs and drinking alcohol, and eventually he relents and signs the statement. What he may or may not have realized is that the statement claimed that Francisco and his friends, Arthur and John, had decided to hurt a rival gang member by setting his home on fire. And the statement also said that the three of them bought the gas and used it to light the fire. When State Attorney Layton came into the room to accept the statement into the official records, Francisco asked for an attorney of his own, but the authorities ignored him, and even though Francisco was in absolutely no condition to be submitting a legal statement, Layton still took this confession into evidence. Eventually, Francisco was arrested and charged with aggravated arson and first-degree murder. He tried to get his statement suppressed, but his attorney didn't really do anything to try and help him do that. As you might have guessed, the statement slash confession that they got from John Gallivan was obtained in a similar fashion. Although authorities claimed that he had confessed, John was actually not involved in the fire at all. He was actually with three other people at that time, one of which was his girlfriend who had picked him up at his grandmother's house super early that same morning. So remember, the fire was set at four and John is with his girlfriend before that. And so we know this is true because at 3 a.m., which was an hour before the fire, the group of them were actually pulled over by an unmarked police car and given a curfew citation because John's girlfriend's sister, who was with them, was actually underage. So there's basically timestamps on all this. Right. They were seen by an actual police officer. Yeah. Like, what is a better alibi than the police being like, right. I saw this guy at this time? So the officer that pulled them over actually even followed them back to John's grandmother's house. And they watched John go inside while John's brother got in his car and went home. So John's grandmother had to let him inside because he didn't have a key. And he said he went to bed right away and didn't even know about the fire until a day or two later. Nevertheless, John was subject to the same unnecessary force we described before. John was eventually told that he had to agree to what investigators had written down and sign it if he wanted to go home. He claimed to be punched in the back of the head and shoved around while he cried and yelled for them to stop. They even threatened to literally shoot John if they had to. And John was terrified at this point, as one would be, and he ended up signing this paper. He was told that he would need to read and study what he just signed so he could recite it from memory later. He was then physically abused when he was unable to do so. So John was charged with aggravated arson and first-degree murder, just like Arthur and Francisco. 
By the end of it, detectives had scripted three separate false confessions that had slightly differing details, but ultimately all contained the same key details about how the fire started. It was later learned that one of the investigators, Detective Switsky, actually had a history of coercing confessions and beating people up in the interview room. One court document outlined seven different people, and that's aside from Arthur, John, and Francisco, that had been affected by Switsky. Three of these people were, quote-unquote, interviewed by Switsky in the same month, and one of these people was only 14 years old. Wow. Despite there being no evidence that solidly tied these three men to the fire, they all stood trial for the charges of arson and first-degree murder. Arthur and Francisco were tried together, but they had separate juries, and John was tried by himself in a separate trial altogether. John's trial began in May of 1989. Prosecutors said that John lit a Molotov cocktail with a cigarette in order to intentionally get revenge on the Martinez brothers who lived inside the apartment. They alleged that witnesses said they feared John, and many of the various statements and confessions made in the case were entered into evidence. For example, those other three young men that we mentioned early on that were allegedly also in the alleyway right before the fire broke out, one of them, who was named Nick, testified that he could positively identify John as being one of the men he saw in the alley. Interestingly, though, one of the other men who was with Nick, his friend Ben, who we talked about earlier, was actually asked not to testify at John's trial. A fire expert testified that he found, quote, a considerable amount of glass on the first floor porch. He said the fire was ignited by an unknown source and that the fire itself had burned off all the accelerants and that's why there was no evidence of any accelerants at the scene. John's defense took an unfortunate blow when they were told that the witness statements about the woman named Lisa and how she wanted to burn down the Martinez home would not be allowed in the trial because the judge had deemed them to be hearsay. John did take the stand in his own defense, and he spoke about his experience with the investigators and how they refused to listen to him and told him that he must agree with what they said if he wanted to leave. John testified that Detective Switsky came up with a confession that John ultimately signed. He also spoke about being physically assaulted by the officers, although he seemed to play down that part a little bit. He later said that's because his attorney felt the jury actually wouldn't believe this graphic truth about what happened to him. So basically play it down, make it not as bad as it actually was. Detective Switzky, of course, testified that he never hurt John. In the end, John was convicted of aggravated arson and murder and sentenced to life without parole. And although he appealed his conviction and sentence, both were upheld. As for Arthur and Francisco, their joint trial began in January of 1990. Prosecutors laid out a very similar case to the one that was laid out in John's trial. They introduced the coerced statements into evidence, but once again, anything about Lisa was not allowed to be heard. They argued that Francisco was guilty just because he was there and showed no sign of wanting to get himself out of the situation. The example they give with this is that he willingly rode along to buy gasoline and continued to hang out with the other two men instead of distancing himself from a bad situation. The guy Nick that was from that other group of men that was in the alley testified that seconds before the fire started, he saw John with another man, the guy Michael we talked about, who is basically the one who led police into honing in on John. There's so many people, John, Arthur, and Francisco. Although really, we basically know that there's a chance Michael was coerced into even naming them because of how this whole investigation sure. went down. So Nick also testified that John Gallivan was a gang member, which was used to prove that he had a motive for the fire. The only evidence they had against Francisco was his own statement that had been falsely written. His defense pointed out there simply was just not any evidence to show that Francisco was involved in the crime. Detectives Hanrahan and Switsky both denied that they abused anyone during their interrogations. Both Arthur and Francisco ended up being convicted of arson and first-degree murder and were sentenced to life without parole. They too tried to appeal, but failed, at least at first. And we have so much more to get into after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Aging gives you a lot of things, but one thing it doesn't give you is more hair on your head. My hair has become more and more thin in the last few years, which is why I went searching for something to help, and thankfully, I found Vegamore. Vegamore products are a win-win for everyone. 
Not only does it promote healthy hair and scalp health, but they use clean ingredients that are 100% cruelty-free and never formulated with potentially harmful chemicals like parabens or hormones. I started using Vegamore's Grow Serum last year and just recently started using their Grow Shampoo and Conditioner. I love how my hair is looking fuller and shinier without all the harsh ingredients. The Vegamore Grow Serum was such an easy thing to just add into my nightly routine. I just add a few drops to my dry hair every night and it promotes great hair growth, which I desperately need. Give yourself the hair you never thought you could have with Vegamore. For a limited time, Moms and Mysteries listeners get 20% off their first order by going to vegamore.com slash moms and use code moms at checkout. That's V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R dot com slash moms, code moms to save 20% on your first order. V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R dot com slash moms, code moms. Let's face it, owning a pet can be quite costly. From the expenses of pet food to arranging pet sitting services when you go on vacation, the financial burden can escalate rapidly. However, there is one investment that undoubtedly pays off for your beloved furry companion, pet insurance. Vet care prices have really gone crazy. They skyrocketed by a whopping 33% from 2022 to 2023. But with Embrace Pet Insurance, you can strut into any vet or emergency clinic with confidence, knowing that you're protected. And if, like Mandy, you're the lucky parent of multiple fur babies, Embrace has a special treat for you, a 10% multi-pet discount. And Mandy, you're going to love that discount because I'm sure there's another animal in your future, maybe even before we finish this ad. I love that. I am all about a discount. Plus, Embrace has a 24-7 helpline ready to answer all your pet-related dilemmas. Because as we all know, pet emergencies rarely occur during normal business hours. And if that's not enough, they even offer an optional wellness rewards program, ensuring you take preventative measures to keep your pets healthy. So hopefully, you'll never even have to use Embrace in the first place. When my dog Remy had stomach issues last year, I brought him into the vet, preparing to pay an arm and a leg for the treatment. But with my pet insurance, I was able to walk out for a fraction of the price I would have paid without pet insurance. And Embrace Pet Insurance is incredibly affordable and the peace of mind is invaluable. Don't wait for the unexpected to happen. Join the massive community of pet owners who trust Embrace Pet Insurance to protect their pet. Head to embracepetinsurance.com slash moms and sign up for pet insurance today. Make sure you go to embracepetinsurance.com slash moms or else they won't know we sent you. Recently, I was looking for a doctor and I did what I normally do. I went to my insurance website, printed out a list of doctors that take my insurance, and then I went down the list to call them. Sounds fun, right? But not only were some of the numbers and information out of date, but a lot of them didn't even have appointments for several months. Thanks to ZocDoc, though, I could find a doctor that not only takes my insurance, but is patient-reviewed and actually has appointment availability, so I'm not wasting my time sitting on hold. ZocDoc is a free app where you can find amazing doctors and book appointments online. We're talking about booking appointments with thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed doctors and specialists. You can filter specifically for ones who take your insurance, are located near you, and treat almost any condition you're searching for. I loved reading reviews from actual patients, not bots, before I actually decided to schedule. Plus, you can skip the phone call altogether and just schedule online. Gone are the days of yelling operator into your phone until you finally get connected to a human. And the best part is the average wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is 24 to 48 hours. And you can sometimes even score a same-day visit. Because when you finally make the decision to go see the doctor for that weird thing on your back, you want to see him now, not three months from now. Go to ZocDoc.com mysteries and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash mysteries. ZocDoc.com slash mysteries. And now back to the episode. All right. So before the break, we have gotten into so many things. I feel like I would have a very tough time even recapping them in this case because there has been so much that has really happened. There's been false confessions, coerced statements that have led to the conviction of three young men that are actually looking more and more innocent the more you kind of find out about these detectives who actually interrogated them. John, Arthur, and Francisco were all behind bars for life for a crime that authorities really hadn't even come close to proving that they had done. And these men were desperately fighting through the appeals process in hopes of being exonerated. In 1995, John filed a petition for a post-conviction hearing. He wanted to have his sentence vacated and to be awarded a new trial. This petition was denied, but John continued to file appeals year after year. 
In 2004, he filed a claim of actual innocence based on this new affidavit from Ben, who was one of the other men in the alley that morning that we've mentioned in this episode. In the affidavit, Ben said that he didn't recognize any of the men that he and his friends saw that night. He also said that when he asked Nick who they were, Nick said he didn't know either. Ben knew John for many years, and he would have recognized him if he had seen him. And Ben is the guy who didn't testify, Correct. right? They asked He's the him one not that for to, some right. reason. Yeah, exactly. So from there, John requested a continuance to investigate evidence of police misconduct at the Chicago Police Department Area 4 headquarters. He was trying to prove that his confession had been coerced. One month after the records were received by the court, John's motion was granted. His attorneys were allowed to inspect evidence in an unrelated criminal case involving an alleged coerced confession that was by the same detective who obtained John's confession. So not John's case, different case entirely, same detective, same kind of thing, coerced confession. Right. But in 2006, the hearing ended up being put on hold after the judge was transferred to a different division. By this time, lawyers from the Exoneration Project at the University of Chicago Law School were actually working with John, and they would later go on to work with Arthur as well. Meanwhile, a breakthrough in John's case came in the most unexpected way you can imagine when John was actually watching an episode of the popular TV show Mythbusters on the prison television. Yeah, I was going to ask, you are a Mythbusters fan? I like Mythbusters, yes. I always did. It was like one of those shows I feel like that would be on, like, continuously like several episodes in a row or whatever yeah Yeah. and so you can just sit there and watch like multiple episodes yeah that was one that I really enjoyed yeah there's one you don't need like a touchstone you can just like go into it the whatever episode and it doesn't matter um so he was actually watching an episode of Mythbusters and in this episode the crew on Mythbusters was trying to see if they could ignite gasoline with a lit cigarette which I thought was like a no-brainer. I thought that, I was, thought that was a serious risk, like that you had to worry about. <laughs> Absolutely. Why are there there's so many signs at the gas station? This is a real fear we've all had, and so it's something you see done in the movies. And this is what prosecutors claim the whole time, right? That this is what happened: that a cigarette got they had their gasoline, it uh, it lit, and that's the whole reason these people have died. In the show, on this Mythbusters episode, they were unable to set the fire. And so after seeing this, John, of course, cannot wait to tell his attorney. And his attorney agreed that this is huge. And she started to dig deeper and ask questions about this so-called arson science that was actually used to convict John. The ATF ended up conducting experiments that proved that a lit cigarette did not burn hot enough to light gasoline on fire. Wild, Oliver. (laughs) This is definitely news to me, for sure. But can you imagine you've been sitting in prison for however long and you find out the entire case hinges on this one thing that scientifically is not even possible? I, I can't even imagine going through that. In 2009, this new judge in John's case dismisses John's evidentiary hearing, siding with the state who had motioned to dismiss everything. John then filed an appeal to the judge's decision in 2012. The circuit court reversed the judge's decision and ruled that an evidentiary hearing should be held. Throughout the process, Arthur's been going through pretty much the exact same thing. In 2013, it was ruled that he should have an evidentiary hearing as well. Francisco, though, didn't have as much luck. It seems like he didn't maybe file as many appeals as John and Arthur. We're not exactly sure why, but it was three separate cases. So you can see how everybody's kind of doing something a little bit different. Yeah. And I feel like everybody has access to like a different attorney. You know, you have different representation. And so it's kind of like you're at the mercy of people who know more about the legal system than you do. So, you know, if you don't have someone there telling you like, hey, we can go in through this route and try to get this and this. And unfortunately, in some cases, like the attorneys just don't do the work for you. I mean, there's great attorneys and then there's attorneys who do the bare minimum. So who knows? Maybe his representation just wasn't great. Right. Over the next several years, John and Arthur's lawyers worked to gather as much evidence of their wrongful convictions as they possibly could. Their evidentiary hearings were finally held in 2016 and lasted for 14 days. Ben testified that he was helping Nick and Ray get home because they were both intoxicated. He said that the three of them saw what he called three young kids walking towards them, but he said he didn't recognize them. Shortly thereafter, Ben heard a woman yelling fire in Spanish, and he realized that it was Sophia, the neighbor. Ben said that he saw three boys running west down the street, but he was too focused on helping Sophia and figuring out what was going on with this fire. 
He even said that he helped a woman escape from the second floor window of the burning building. Furthermore, Ben said that the police showed him photos of suspects several months after the fire, and two of them in the photos were John and Arthur. So when Ben sees his friends in this lineup, he tells the police he does know who they are, but he says that these two men were not there that night. But he said the police didn't listen to him, or they chose to ignore it. He provided ample testimony stating that he did not recognize any of the three suspects he saw that night and pointed out that it was pitch black in the alley at that time. Keep in mind, it's about four o'clock in the morning. If you've ever been outside at 4 a.m. and it's not like a very well-lit area, it's very dark. You won't be able to make out the details of somebody's face. And so Ben said that the darkness combined with the distance between them made it really impossible to say for sure who anybody was. So remember the person that we mentioned very early in the episode, this woman named Lisa, that multiple people kind of had said, she's the one you need to be talking to. She's the one who's been going around telling uh, multiple people that live in this complex that she has this idea of burning down the Martinez residence. So one of the officers, Detectives Thomas Jones, testified that multiple people had told him about Lisa. And there was even evidence of this in the police reports. John testified at the evidentiary hearing as well and spoke about where he was during the time of the fire, as well as what he went through with the whole interrogation process. For the first time during this evidentiary hearing, John actually testified the full brutal truth about everything that happened to him, including being punched and being kicked by Detective Switsky. He admitted that he had kind of sugarcoated this abuse before at the advice of his attorney because, as we mentioned earlier, the attorney said that he felt the jury would not believe him if he went in there and started saying the full truth about what happened, which is kind of like an interesting take because on one hand, I can see where the attorney is coming from. And if you kind of put yourself in the position of being a juror and you're thinking like, what would I think? If someone that they're present, the state is presenting as a criminal, you know, a murderer, somebody who's committed arson and a murderer, what are you going to think? What is the average person going to think when they're sitting up there and making these wild, you know, what sounds like it could be wild claims about being abused at the hands of the police? And so I can kind of understand why the attorney is like, yeah, because of the things that you're like, you know, accused of and the, you know, the things that you would have to say, like, there's a chance that people are just not going to believe you. They're going to think that all of this is just so wild and like they're not going to believe what you're telling them. So I kind of understand that. But then at the same time, I understand being in John's shoes and being like, no, I want every, I want to say like everything. This is my chance. Exactly. Like I want everyone to know the truth about what's gone on. Um, So it's really kind of just one of those situations like which, what is the right direction to go in? Right. John's brother, who, as we mentioned, was also arrested alongside John, testified uh, that during his interrogation, he was able to hear yelling, crying, and noises on the wall or table, and it was all coming from John's room. John's brother testified that he was questioned for 11 hours before going to a lineup. And at the lineup, he saw his brother, John, who looked like a zombie. He said his brother had red and bloodshot eyes, and he had marks on his forehead. Arthur also testified in the hearing and talked about the things that happened to him while he was in police custody as well. When the now-retired Detective Switsky was asked to answer for himself, he denied having any recollection of this specific investigation and no memory of taking confessions from John or any other witnesses in the case at all. Very convenient. He said that whatever he wrote in any report at the time would have been the truth. Oh, sure. Yeah. Very. I love when people are like, can't recall. And it's like, you were the most important person right. in this case. He's like, oh, and just check the notes. Whatever it says is what, what happened. A fire and explosion expert was brought in to talk about the evidence as to what started the fire in the first place. As it turned out, there was none. Although the fire expert that testified at John's original trial stated that the fire started on the back porch, this new expert for John's defense was saying there was no evidence that could determine where the fire started in this case, and that the most likely place for the fire to have started was actually in the stairwell, which could not have been reached by a bottle thrown from the alley. They also pointed out that the Molotov cocktail theory was impossible due to the fact that a cigarette cannot ignite gasoline. In the end, John and Arthur's post-conviction petitions were sadly denied because the judge determined that the men had not met the burden of proof required for post-conviction relief. The court found the witnesses to be untrustworthy and not credible. 
In 2019 and in 2020, in separate rulings, the Illinois Appellate Court reinstated the petitions and ruled that John and Arthur should receive new hearings and, quote, if necessary, a new trial, end quote. After a further hearing on remand, the trial court declined to suppress the statements and close the case. They appealed again. In June of 2022, the Illinois Appellate Court finally vacated the men's convictions and ordered new trials for them. The court cited the detective's history of forcing confessions and ruled that there was no evidence aside from these confessions that connected the men to the crime. Or for that fact that there was even a crime. They don't know what happened. In July of that same year, the charges against John and Arthur were dismissed entirely, and the men were freed from custody after over 35 years. Francisco's charges were also dropped, and he was eventually released from prison as well. When speaking about the release of the three men, John's attorney said, quote, At 18, 20, and 22, the lives of these three men were just beginning when their freedom was stolen. They have shown such determination and strength over the last three and a half decades. This case is representative of the many wrongful convictions stemming from the pervasive misconduct by Chicago law enforcement, as well as invalidated forensic techniques. We have to address these recurring issues if we are to have truly fair and equitable systems of justice in this country, end quote. There were other similar cases that were kind of uncovered at around the same time. In fact, on the same day that John and Arthur were exonerated, two brothers named Juan and Rosendo Hernandez were also exonerated after spending 25 years for a fatal shooting. Just like John, Arthur, and Francisco, the Hernandez brothers maintained their innocence, claiming that the Chicago police had coerced their confessions. The Hernandez brothers had been interrogated by, quote, disgraced former Chicago police detective Reynaldo Guevara. According to the Exoneration Project, more than 20 people convicted in cases tied to Guevara have been exonerated, which is just mind-blowing. Like, I equate this kind of thing to almost to the stories that we hear about, like, nurses or people working in healthcare, like, abusing their position and you know, right, horrifically hurting their patients. But like, to be in this position of law enforcement, where like, people's lives are literally on the line based on what you do. And like, let's be clear, police who coerce confessions, like they know that they're doing that, you know, they know exactly what they're doing. It's not an accident. Right? Like they know that they're using this technique that like is not appropriate. And in some cases, they just like truly just don't care. They just want to get get someone. So but it's wild to me that this one guy was has is tied to more than 20 exoneration stories. Like that's just mind blowing to me. So the Sun Times reported that Guevara has been repeatedly accused of engaging in misconduct, including fabricating evidence and police reports and coercing witnesses to make identifications, sometimes using violence, according to these court records. Since 1986, no fewer than 200 cases have come to light in which Chicago police officers have fabricated false evidence or suppressed exculpatory evidence to convict innocent people for serious crimes they did not commit, numerous of which involve the people involved in Arthur, John, and Francisco's cases. So, I don't know. I I mean, it's, I don't know, what what do you even say to that? That's terribly sad, and just to think about these people that have literally been in prison for years and years and like they can't get out <laughs> like you have well, to fight and you the have system. to on top of that think of the people who actually committed these crimes that are out just on the streets free to commit more crimes right. because the wrong person's in prison or like you said if there was even a crime committed here like all of this could be literally absolutely for nothing it could have been a total accident they never investigated or confirmed a true cause of this fire so we don't even know if anyone committed a crime So as for where these men are today, on May 19th, 2023, just very recently, um, Arthur, John, and Francisco filed separate civil lawsuits against the city of Chicago, Detective Switzky, Detectives Hanrahan, Assistant State Attorney Joel Layton, and many, many more. As of today, these lawsuits are, of course, still making their way through the system. It's just very unfortunate how long that kind of stuff takes. Oh, yeah. I mean, the fact that, like, what year was it that um, he even saw the the Mythbusters episode? Right. I mean, he was still in prison for, like, 10 more years after that. It, it was insane. And the thing, like, you were, we were talking about, there may not have ever been a crime because this wasn't investigated the way it should have been. 
we'll never know. There could right. be three other people that actually did this, or it could have just been an unfortunate, terrible accident. We just don't know. Okay, Melissa, that was the episode for this week. Are we ready to turn the page and move on to our last thing before we go? I think we are. Um, I This episode was a little confusing. We've been saying that throughout this uh, story. So we thought, why not end this story why not end the week on something that makes sense? Just kidding. We're going to do something else that's very confusing. We're going <laughs> to play, play a game that we both get confused on. Now, is this the right game we want to play? The the summer things where we both do one, two, three and try to say summer things and see if we can get to the same thing? Okay, yeah. So not. then basically we're going to keep guessing things that are related until we both say the same thing. Or we quit. <laughs> We're so good at explaining games. <laughs> <laughs> to ourselves, who are leading the game of just us two. Um, yes, okay. So count. I'll count off on three, and then we'll say the first one. Okay, Ready? so we're, the theme, though, is that we're keeping it summertime. Summer, yeah. Okay. Try as much as you can. Okay. Okay. One, two, three, sun. Beach. Okay. All right. Not terrible. One, two, three, Sand. Sand. Oh, okay. Well, that was quite boring. <laughs> that might be our worst one ever. That was like I was a record-breaking finish to a, a confusing yeah. game. I think we're not confused anymore. I think we got it. <laughs> no, I think we might be too good at this game now. So anybody that's hating on us, sorry about that. Um, last week, my son was on, and it was we had so many nice comments about it, and he thought it was so cool. So thank you guys for saying very Aww. nice things. Yeah. Um, and Melissa, you told me now that you have um, a new there's, – there's a whole new interest in your house now that you're learning new facts. <laughs> okay. Here's the thing. Flags were amazing. Countries were amazing. I was learning things. Now I'm having to learn about carp and fish <laughs> and things called um, – is it drowsy syndrome – I don't know. Oh, I, I've got to remember. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this is like a bladder thing for fish. He's showing me videos of oh, how people. That's what I have. <laughs> lots of <laughs> lots of mating fish videos, like them just talking about it. And I'm like, I don't know if I want to sit here with you while we talk about this. Asking if he can mate his fish. I just don't know. It's it's going to be oh. horrific for me. Just so you know, it's just getting it's getting started, and it's oh. we have at least three months to go on. on <laughs> What on happens obsession. in three months? We'll be on something else. So okay. I'm about to learn so much about fish, and I'm, so I'm going to be quizzing you. you. I love that for mm-hmm. you. I Give know, me it's a week. <laughs> Next episode, I'll just quiz you on fish. It's always exciting whenever there's a new thing, though. You know, like you've been on flags for a long time, and now right? I feel like I, I'm ready for you to move on to fish. So You're ready for me to learn something new? Yes. I was finally <laughs> learning the flags. I, I don't know how to deal with this. So anyway, it'll be it'll be interesting. Or they'll die. I don't know. Maybe maybe that could get us off this subject a little sooner. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> All right, guys. That was the story for this week. We will be back next week. Same time, same place, new story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.